0: All right. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see you. Welcome to Sundays in July. And uh, our particular topic is poison in the well, guarding against a heart of bitterness. So um, it's good to have you. So we'll uh, pray as we get started here, and then we'll jump right into our topic, all right? Gracious Father, we are so grateful for The Word of God and how it helps us with the difficult areas of life, and especially in examining in our own hearts. We remember the words of David when David said, search my heart, dear Lord, and um, know me. Father, it is the Word of God that searches our hearts and helps us to understand those defiling characteristics of the heart that cause us to be sinful and ungodly in our attitudes and behavior. And one of those key aspects has to do with the issue of bitterness. Father, I pray that You'll use the Word of God in our lives, um, first in my life as a speaker, and then in each person's life that is listening to this today. And use the Word of God so mightily that it changes us to be more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. This is what we desire, and this we pray in Christ's name, amen. Please take your Bible. Let's go over to the book of Ruth just for a moment as we get started here. And as we look at Ruth chapter 1, in the book of Ruth, we're introduced to Naomi's bitterness and especially her bitterness towards God. In fact, Let's pick up in verse 19 of Ruth chapter 1. It says, Then they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and now it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly, with me. You realize that Naomi had suffered some of the greatest losses that life could ever give a person. She had experienced severe famine, and that's one of the main reasons why she and her husband Elimelech left Bethlehem with their two boys and traveled to Moab it was during that great famine that was going on because God had sent that famine as a judgment on Israel because of their rebellion against him. And she had experienced that severe famine, and her two, two boys were born. In fact, you look up earlier in chapter 1, one of them was called Malone, the other one Chilion. And in the Hebrew, that means Malone means sick. And Chilean weekly, no doubt her two boys were malnourished during her pregnancy. They were born, and they were named properly sick and weakly. The way the construction of the language is, it suggests the possibility that they were actually twin boys. My wife and I immediately relate to that because we had twin boys, identical twin boys. So sick and weakly were born to them. Because of the malnourishment that occurred due to the famine, Naomi had to leave her home and her friends and travel to live in a country filled with her enemies because the Moabites were arch enemies of the Israelites. Her husband Elimelech eventually succumbed to the hardships of trying to provide for his family, and he dies. Her two sons do grow to meritable age where they marry two Moabite women and soon after that they die. Then one of her daughter-in-laws, Orpah, leaves her and returns to her birth family. Leaving her with Ruth. Ruth married Malone, she married sick. <laughs> and Orpa married Chilion, she married weakly. These two. So Ruth now is left with Naomi. And as you can see in verse 20... After Ruth remains with Naomi and goes back to Jerusalem, which is a story in and of itself. In other words, Ruth decided to remain with her mother-in-law, who was extremely bitter. And verse 19 is very revealing because the women there that were still in Bethlehem recognized Naomi, although her countenance had so changed that they asked the question, is this really Naomi? Is this Naomi? And of course, her name means pleasant or sweet in the Hebrew. Her parents named her Sweetie, Pleasant, Naomi. But due to her countenance, she was no longer sweet. She was Mara, bitter, And it read all over her. She was bitter because she had lost her husband. Naomi had lost her two sons. And as a result of that, this turned to severe bitterness. And in fact, in verse 20, when she says to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty, she doesn't refer to the covenant name of the Lord here, she refers to Shaddai, which means the all-powerful God, has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went out full, but Yahweh has crushed me, or has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Naomi. Yahweh has answered against me, and the Almighty, Shaddai, has brought calamity against me. She was a very bitter woman. She went from being sweet to being bitter over the circumstances of her life. Now, it's very interesting. If you'll take your Bible just for a moment and go back to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the issue of bitterness, and he says in verse 31, let all bitterness, first thing on the list, and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And when you study this very, very carefully, you realize that malice is a very broad issue. To to have malice is a general wishing of ill will towards someone else, and that becomes the source of all these other problems. What? Bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander. Malice is the source of that, this general wishing of ill will towards someone else that arises in a person's heart, that brings about as a result of that real bitterness... Instead, he says, and this is the put on, be kind to one another. What's the kindest thing you can say or think or do for that other person? Be tender hearted. Actually, literally in the Greek, this is tender bowed because the bowels were the seed of emotions, not the heart. Tender bowed, but for our translation purposes, they say tender hearted, but literally it's tender bowed graciously forgiving one another. So what's the most tender thing that you can say or think or do towards that other person? What's the most forgiving thing you can say or think or do to the other do for the other person? And here's the foundation of the whole thing. Just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you, you have to realize that the counterbalance to this bitterness and the anger and the wrath and the shouting and the slander and um and all of this malice is the fact that you understand how you have been forgiven in Christ. In general, in general, bitterness, really, it comes from the idea of something that is disagreeable to your sense of taste. The Old Testament Hebrew word Mara. Or a derivative of that, and in the New Testament, the Greek word picros, or its derivative, in the Old Testament, it was used to speak of bitter herbs, like in Exodus chapter twelve and verse eight, of bitter grapes in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two and verse thirty-two, uh, or bitter water, which comes by its bitterness either naturally in Exodus fifteen twenty-three, or because of divine curse in Numbers chapter 5 and verse 17. But metaphorically, bitterness can express really what we understand as desperation or pain or despondency. Naomi's taste of life was bitter. She was consumed with this emotional pain because of her loss. And she was at the point of deep desperation. Now, as you study the account of Naomi's bitterness, you need to be aware of five things, five signs of bitterness towards God. Now, this is not in your outline yet, but let me give these to you briefly. Five signs of true bitterness in your thinking. Number one is this. I know what is best for my life better than God. There's the source of the malice and the bitterness. I know what is best for my life better than God. I know that. Number two, I'm justified in my anger against God. I am justified in my anger against God. So I know what is best for my life better than God. I'm justified in my anger against God. Number three, I want to wallow in self-pity because of God's frowning providence. I want to wallow in my self-pity because of God's frowning providence. Number four, I love the state of victimization because... God cannot hold me responsible. I love the state of victimization because God cannot hold me responsible. Number five, last of all, I'm unhappy and ungrateful because God has abused me. When you go back, to Ruth chapter 1, and you carefully study the terminology that Ruth is using here, she is essentially saying that Shaddai, God the Almighty, has been abusive towards me. He is an abusive God. Bitterness imprisons your soul. But love and trust in God's providence frees it. Like a bird released from a cage, you live free. John Broker, who is the author of Self-Confrontation, a manual for in-depth discipleship, has made this observation about bitterness when he says, "'Anger and bitterness are two noticeable signs of being focused on self and not trusting God's sovereignty in your life.'" When you believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who belong to Him and love Him, you can respond to trials with joy instead of anger and bitterness. Now, there's something I want you to memorize, all right? In fact, we're going to say this together. Are you ready? We're going to learn today, okay? Let's see if we could put this up on the screen Does this look like you when you become bitter? All right, here we go. The first thing is this. When bitterness towards circumstances is acute. All right, you ready to say that? When bitterness towards circumstances is acute. Thank you, both of you. Let's all of us do it, all right? Here we go. When bitterness towards circumstances is acute then bitterness towards God is the root, and bitterness towards others is the fruit. I want you to remember that. We're going to come back to that, and we're going to break that down. When bitterness towards circumstances is acute, then bitterness towards God is the root, and bitterness towards others is the fruit. There it is. We're going to memorize that together, something that you need to remember concerning the issue of bitterness in your life. So let's take a look at the first thing here. This brings us to the setting, which is bitterness towards circumstances is acute. The root of Naomi's name as I mentioned just a little bit earlier has to do with pleasantness. It has to do with um sweetness, uh, liveliness, delight. Her name meant pleasant or sweet. And the irony of her name is spelled out with clarity in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 20, because her birth name was sweet, but her perception of life had become bitter. She got tired of people calling her sweetie. Even today, you can hear a parent refer to their child as sweetie or honey. How strange it would be if later on that same child grows up and wants to be called seething or anguished. Don't call me sweetie anymore. Call me seething. All right? I don't want to be called that anymore. The circumstances Naomi's life had set the stage for a lack of trust in God's providence to surface as really very, very distasteful bitterness, bitterness in her life. So, as we take a look at this, there, let me give you three other examples of bitterness in Scripture, and one of them may be surprising to you. The first one really comes from Genesis chapter 27 and verse 34. In this case, Esau's bitterness over the loss of his birthright is very clear. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Esau fully expected his brother or his father Uh, Isaac's covenant family blessing because he was the firstborn. But Isaac had given it to his younger brother, Jacob. And upon learning of this, Esau now adopts the position of a victim and bitterly pleads his case, but it was of no use. The deed was already done. And in fact, the author of Hebrews talks about this. So take your Bible. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. We can gain a little bit of insight into the issue of bitterness here. In verse 15, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, it says, Seeing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled that also that there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit a blessing he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought it with sought for it with tears now the question is here what did he seek for? I mean, is it possible that a here, here, here's um, Esau, and he was repentant, and yet God still rejected that repentance? No, he, he wasn't seeking. In fact, if you take a look at the construction of the original language, the little word it at the end of verse 17 actually refers back to blessing, not repentance, He was not seeking repentance. He was seeking the blessing. Big difference between the two. What did he seek? He sought the blessing. He wanted the good things of this life, and he wanted the comforts of this life. He wanted to receive the inheritance, but he was not willing to acknowledge the fact that he had sinfully denied his birthright. So, the Greek terminology points to the fact that Esau was not seeking repentance with tears. He was seeking the blessing with tears. And as a result of that, he didn't receive it. He became extremely better over the loss of his birthright. There's another example of this. And if you want to take your Bible and go over to 1 Samuel chapter 1... Go back to the book of Ruth, and then go over to 1 Samuel right after that, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. In verse 4, it says, and the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, and he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah... He would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but Yahweh had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because Yahweh had closed her womb. And so it would happen year after year. As often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she would provoke her. So she wept, and she would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? In other words, Hannah was a very bitter woman because she was not receiving what she really wanted. Her husband, Elkanah, had other wives, Paniah which indicated that he was a pretty wealthy man because in ancient times, only the very wealthy had multiple wives. And so he was a wealthy man, but this other wife of Elkanah, Paniah, would provoke her year after year because Hannah was barren and it was Yahweh, the Lord himself, that had closed her womb. It's significant then later on that the high priest Eli was within sight of Hannah while she was at Shiloh, we're told later on in the narrative, and we're told that Eli was a very fat, and by the way, back in ancient times, that was a good thing, not a bad thing. That indicated the fact that God's blessing was upon that person, all right? Very fat, 1 Samuel 4, 18, and that was often understood in ancient times as being greatly blessed by the Lord. Additionally, to rub salt into the wounds of Hannah, Eli had two sons. She had none. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite and you were reading this, here you've got this high priest, Eli, who seemed to be really blessed and having two sons, and you've got this barren woman which among all women women in ancient times was, were despised. If you couldn't bear children, you were the worst of the worst. If you're an ancient Israelite and you're reading that, who do you think is really going to be the star of this story? The star of the story is going to be Eli, hands down, every time. Look at the blessings that he has. And yet, that was not God's intention at all. But I want you to notice the fact that Hannah did become bitter when she saw how Paniah had produced sons for her husband, Elkanah, And when she saw Eli, the fat priest, producing two sons, I mean, everything seemed to be against her as she looked at all of her circumstances, this is the very thing that caused her to be extremely bitter. Sad and extremely unhappy. Of course, you know the long story of it. She pleads before the Lord, and the Lord eventually opens her womb, and she's able to produce one son, and that particular son now changes the entire course of Israel. But there was a time Where Hannah was very, very bitter. Let's turn to the New Testament for a moment to a third example. This may be surprising to you, but let's go over to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 75. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 75. You, I'm sure, recall this particular account where the Lord Jesus Christ has warned. Peter, that Peter is going to deny him three times, and just as Jesus had warned, so it happened. Verse 75 says, Matthew 26, And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and cried bitterly. He went out and cried bitterly bitterly. Peter had been boastful on the night of the Last Supper, boastful about his willingness to follow Jesus even to the point of death. In fact, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Peter greatly overestimated his loyalty and faithfulness. He thought that he was stronger than he really was. First, he denies Christ to a servant girl. You can see that in verses 69 and 70. Then another servant girl comes and challenges him, and he denies Christ again. And finally, a bystander confronts him, and he denies Christ a third time. The crowing of the rooster brought him back to his senses, and he remembered the prophetic words of Jesus. He's so convicted of his grievous sin and depending upon the strength of his own loyalty and his own faithfulness and the fact that he had failed the Lord so miserably that he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Now, in all three of these cases, you can see this with Esau, you can see it with Hannah, you can see it with Peter, and you can also see it with Naomi, which would be the fourth case. The adversity of their circumstances were the occasion for their bitterness and their tears. Awful circumstances of life will bring you to tears, no matter how strong you think you are. Just given the right circumstances, it will reduce you and you will realize your weakness. What can we learn from some of this? What's really key here? There are some theological lessons you can learn from your circumstances. One is this, that bitterness is sowed when your heart desires the comforts of this life more than pleasing God. Bitterness is sowed when your heart desires the comforts of this life more than pleasing God. Moses was the exact opposite of Esau. In Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure the ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. In other words, Moses had an eternal perspective in life. And may I suggest to you that's one of the great guards against bitterness, having that eternal perspective. If you're focused in on your circumstances around you, if you're very myopic in your view of life and all you see is everything that it's, you have lost, if that's all you see and you don't have the long-term or the eternal perspective, which is the godly perspective, you will fail and you will succumb to bitterness. You'll begin to think ill will about how God has treated you. There's a second thing that I think is key here. The second thing is that bitterness does not come from your bad circumstances. It comes from your perception of your circumstances. I think this is very significant for you to understand. Hannah believed a lie. Life's happiness was found in having children, like the other women that she knew. This lie set her heart up for failure. She became bitter when she saw how God had blessed others, not her. God had blessed her rival, Paniah, and that lazy priest, Eli. But she somehow was forgotten as a result of this. So jealousy now fills her heart. Hannah's circumstances of her bitterness now was different from that of Naomi's, but the result was the same because of their outlook on life. She became very myopic. She became very turned inward. All she could see was the immediate. She couldn't think in terms of long term, and she certainly didn't trust what God was doing. James chapter 3 and verse 14 says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is lying against the truth. What is that truth that we're lying against? It's the truth that ultimately God is in control of our circumstances for his glory and for your good. That's that's a key thing. You cannot separate his glory from your good. You can't do that. They are inextricably bound together. His glory, God's glory in your life, your good long term, you cannot separate those two. They are bound together and cannot be removed. So, thirdly, there is a proper kind of bitterness, believe it or not. Bitterness can be a righteous response if it is your response to sin. Like Peter, if it is a reflection of your brokenness over your sin, it's actually a good thing. When was the last time... You were bitter over the fact that you had failed the Lord. When was the last time? It's a sign of genuine repentance. In this case, you're not bitter at God. You're bitter at yourself for displeasing God. In other words, this is where Poor self esteem is actually a good thing. Amazing. (laughs) Unloving yourself, that's part of progressive sanctification. Unloving yourself and loving God more and others more than the human tendency to love self. It's a sign of genuine repentance. James says this about a repentant heart in James 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Always amazing to me how we miss the substantial change that repentance is supposed to bring in our life. It's supposed to be so powerful if it's genuine repentance that it actually changes our nature. Fundamental repentance changes our nature. How do we know that? Because of 2 Peter 2.22, right? Because as Peter talks about there, the dog returns to its vomit. So does a pig return to wallowing in the mud. You can take a pig, wash a pig, perfume a pig, put a bowl around that pig's neck, And the moment you let that pig go, that pig's going to go find a mud puddle and right back in that mud puddle, right? Why does the pig go back to mud puddle? Why does the dog go back and eat its vomit? Disgusting thing to think about. That's an analogy to sin. Why do people keep going back to sin over and over again? Because they're not genuinely repentant. When you're repentant, there's a nature change. It's no longer your nature to do that. It's no longer your nature. You don't want to do that anymore. You're no longer a dog. You're no longer a pig. You're changed. Fundamentally, in your nature. That's why you weep. That's why you mourn. That's why you become bitter over the fact that you have failed your Lord. That's a good kind of bitterness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 listen to this, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow is produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrate yourself to be innocent in the matter. Genuine repentance is such that it doesn't leave any regret. You've left your sin behind. When you have somebody who says that they've they're repentant and yet they still long to be back in that sin, that's a worldly sorrow, that's not a godly sorrow. All right? That's a worldly sorrow, it's not a godly sorrow. It's like Lot's wife, right? God had told Lot and his wife and family to leave Sodom and Gomorrah, don't even look back. Very deliberate. Why does God tell them not even to look back upon it? Because looking back was indicative of the fact that their heart was still back there. That's exactly what happened with Lot's wife. Her body had left Sodom and Gomorrah, but her heart was still there. Her heart was still there. That was where she grew up. That's where she raised her family. That's where her friends were. So she's looking longingly over her shoulder at Sodom and Gomorrah, and God turns her to a pillar of salt. She had not repented. She had not left that place of sin because her heart was still back there. Given the first opportunity, guess where she'd go? Right back there. Like the dog returning to its vomit, like the pig returning to the mud. Substantive nature had not changed. Every time you return to your sin, there is no genuine repentance. And the chance of bitterness taking over your life, it's pretty good. That's pretty good. So that's the setting. But what is the source of all of this? We've already suggested this a little bit. Obviously, the source of this is your bitterness towards God, The root of any tree determines the value of the fruit. When you have bad roots, you have bad fruits. This is the source of poison that's a part of your well. How you respond to setbacks, hardships, losses, difficulties of life really reveals the condition of your heart towards God. It reveals what you really think about God, whether He is a God of goodness, righteousness, truth, love, whether you believe that He's really working all things for His glory and your good, because you cannot separate those two, as I, I suggested just a little bit earlier. When, when you experience a frowning providence, does it cause you to question whether or not God is good? Do you believe that God is abusing you? Do you question the love the Lord Jesus Christ has for you? Because bitterness exposes Your real thoughts about your Savior, it exposes it. So what's going on here? Well, when you are forced or when you are focused on what self wants, you're no longer focused on what God wants. When you are focused on what self wants, you are no longer focused on what God wants. Selfish lusts and desires ruling your heart are not seen until unpleasant and unwanted circumstances now ignite your bitterness. The difficulties of life really are God's chief tools in revealing your heart. Hardship is the hammer that drives the nails of affliction. And when your heart responds to bitter anger, Your impurities then are exposed. What are those impurities? Well, anything that is not in line with God's desires. Solomon writes in Proverbs 17 and verse 3, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts, right? He tests hearts. Sheo and abandoned. Abaddon, lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men, Proverbs 15 and verse 11. God loves to test hearts. He takes us through difficulty. He takes us through hardship. He takes us through wilderness experiences when when He tests our hearts. He doesn't test our hearts so that He can know what's in them. He already knows what's in your heart. He's omniscient. He tests the heart so that you can know what's in your heart. That's the issue. We think we know our hearts. We don't really know them until we have to go through those trials. We don't really know them. We think we do. Note the words of David, the great grandson of Ruth, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 17. He says, since I know, oh, my God that you try the heart and delight in uprightness. I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. So he delights in uprightness and integrity of heart. That's what God delights in. So after knowing that the Lord will test your heart with loss and hardship, can you still pray with David in Psalm 26 and verse 2? Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Can you pray that prayer? (laughs) Examine me. Try me. Try. And the Hebrew terminology is very clear. Take me through hardship so as to test my heart to reveal whether or not my affections for you are pure. Are they pure? There are many Christians who can't pray that. They're afraid about what would come out. Then, out of bitterness, your flesh will want to accuse God of wrongdoing, believing that He has made an awful mistake in your life in your bitterness you're acting like god has made this horrible mistake you may even think that you need to forgive him for the mistake he has made which is pure heresy sinful bitterness is always rooted in a false belief that god about god and his purposes and listen nowhere in the bible is there ever a hint anywhere that we must forgive god even though there are numerous Christians who promote that idea. You don't forgive God of anything. Why? Because he's perfect. He's never erred in all of eternity and you're not his first mistake. (laughs) You have to think about that. Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? That's a great question. God does not need to be forgiven for anything. Many of you know that I teach biblical counseling at the Master's University and here at the seminary a lot, and sometimes I have an opportunity to read a lot of Christian material out there. They're written by Christian psychologists. One situation I really remember real well is reading some Christian psychologist and had a woman come to him who was very upset, very angry, very bitter against God because she had married a man who was very short in stature. And so all of her kids turned out short. And that bothered her to no end, all right? So I'm reading this book by this Christian psychologist. I'm interested in exactly how he's going to counsel her through her bitterness and stuff. And he turns to her and he says, you know what? You're never going to get better until you learn to forgive God. Really? So God really blew it here, huh? really messed up your life. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever do that. Now, why would anybody say that? Why would anybody say that we need to forgive God? The answer is because that's what therapy does. Therapy's goal is to help you feel better, which means oftentimes helping you feel better means feeling justified in your sinful attitude towards God. That makes me feel better. No, it's not the goal. That is pure heresy. One Christian author wrote this about the false notion of forgiving God. He said this, some well-meaning counselors, and he was referring to Christian psychologists, may say that you need to forgive God for the things that you have endured. Yet never in Scripture are we asked to forgive God. God has not wronged us. God is ultimately the only truly wronged party, as He is the only one who is truly innocent. It is we who have sinned against Him. In His graciousness, He has chosen to pay the penalty for our sins himself, and to save us. If we are holding on to anger against the Lord, let his grace melt your bitterness. Only in submission to him will you find peace. There you go. That's what should be done in regards to bitterness. So, what else can we say about this? Well, that doubt and mistrust of God's benevolent sovereignty is the core sinfulness of bitterness. It's the core sinfulness of bitterness. I like what Jerry Bridges wrote about the bitterness of God. He says, bitterness arises in our hearts when we do not trust in the sovereign rule of God in our lives. It arises in our hearts when we do not trust the sovereign rule of God in our lives. So there are two questions you need to answer for yourself. The first question is this. Can you trust the sovereign goodness of God in your life? Can you do that? One Christian author says, it is not easy to trust God in times of adversity. No one enjoys pain. And when it comes, we want it relieved as quickly as possible. Even the Apostle Paul pleaded with God three times to take away the thorn in the flesh before he finally found God's grace to be sufficient, Joseph pleaded with Pharaoh's cupbearer to get me out of this prison in Genesis chapter 40 and verse 14. And the writer of Hebrews very honestly states no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. That's true. But our lives become like watermelon seeds, right? We do. You're going to probably celebrate the 4th of July tomorrow and have watermelon. And you ever take a watermelon seed there and you put it on the little table in front of you and put your finger on it and you press down and, and it pops out, you know, and then that's where we're always slipping out from underneath God's sovereign purposes in our lives or we try to. We're always trying to do that. You've got to understand that God is good all the time. He does not cease to be good when painful hardships somehow invade your life. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah writes, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Great question. Isaiah 38, verse 17. King Hezekiah here confesses that the Lord's hardship in his life was good for, was for his good, I should say. Listen to what he says. Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. <laughs> for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Can you trust the sovereign goodness of God in your life? Second question is this, can you rely upon His unseen providence without surrendering to continual bitterness? Can you do that? Romans chapter 11, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. So God's providence in your life is manifested through His infinite wisdom, something that is far beyond the human mind to grasp or even to fully comprehend. He is willing and is actually working everything out for His glory and your good. In fact, those two are wedded together Lamentations chapter 3, verses 32 and 33. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. You understand, Jeremiah is writing that as he's watching Jerusalem burn after preaching for 40 years there in Jerusalem, calling the people to repentance, and yet he absolutely has zero converts, Right? One of the most despised prophets in the entire Bible was Jeremiah. Imagine somebody preaching for 40 years and having zero converts. Wow, that man wouldn't last in America at all. But he was a total success in God's eyes. He did exactly what needed to happen. And then after he preached and the judgment of God falls upon Jerusalem and he's standing there watching out his window the city burning. He's able to write these words. If he causes grief, he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Imagine that. David writes these words. He says in Psalm 9 and verse 10, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. He doesn't do that. So that's the source. We've talked about the setting. We've talked about the source. Let's talk about the ultimate sign. The ultimate sign there has to do with the fact that we end up being bitter towards others. Once you've allowed your heart to be bitter towards God, it sours all the other relationships in your life. You find yourself short-tempered, pessimistic, withdrawn, unwilling to make the effort to invest in relationships with others. I've seen bitterness destroy marriages, friendships, parent-child relationships, in-law relationships, step-family relationships, even churches. It's an ugly and very disgusting fruit that's really a part of a person's life when a person becomes bitter. So... When you are bitter towards God, it's easy to focus that bitterness upon other people. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, and verse 7, King Saul is an angry, bitter man. Uh, the focus of his anger was upon David, and even though Saul was the chosen king of Israel, he became intently, intensely jealous of the abilities and gifts of David. David killed Goliath. And the women of Israel sang songs that elevated David above Saul. The women sang as they, as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Wow. Saul basically was saying, David is a little pipsqueak. He's a servant in my kingdom. I'm the king. The women should be singing about me, not him. And so he became intensely jealous towards David Saul turns on David and ultimately Saul's anger was against God for allowing David to outshine him and even anointing David as the next king of Israel. So you believe that you have been wronged and you are emotionally wounded. Sometimes your bitterness towards God is transferred to your bitterness towards other people. Your bitterness towards others ultimately is the fruit of your bitterness towards God. You become... Very miserable person to be around. You need to study the life of Saul and how he became a very angry and embittered man. This is where your hurt feelings are taking command of your life. You're responding out of pain rather than responding out of purpose. And your purpose as a believer in Jesus Christ is to live for his honor, not your hurt. Are you going to let your feelings rule you or what God says rule you? What ultimately is going to rule you in your bitterness? Secondly, you will tend to misread the actions of others and easily become offended. When you believe that you're threatened or your life is in danger, it's easy to misread the actions of others. Bitter people are very poor judges of intentions. You believe that others have purposely put you in the position of danger or hurt, and they do not care about your welfare or your feelings. We misread people, right? We misread people. This is exactly in Luke chapter 8, what happened to the disciples when Jesus says, let's cross the Sea of Galilee, so they they get on the boat. And Jesus immediately goes fast asleep. He had been very active and busy in in terms of his ministry, and a fierce storm comes up. And it becomes very, very clear that the disciples begin to think that Jesus has abandoned them. They misread his intentions. And you'll tend to do the same thing in the actions of others and become easily offended offended towards other people, much more easily offended when you become bitter. Thirdly, you view yourself as a perpetual victim of unjust and unfair cruelty of others. Bitterness always views itself as a victim. Others continually treat you unjustly and unfairly. In order to justify their bitter feelings, they have to conclude that, you know, In Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9, when Jeremiah was bitter over the failure of the people of Jerusalem to respond to his prophetic preaching, he quit. In Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, he described his bitterness as a fire in his bones. But if I say, Jeremiah says, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name. Then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. Later on, again, in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 4, Jeremiah describes his bones as being broken due to his bitterness. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away, he has broken my bones. God has brought a horrible judgment upon the land and Jeremiah was bitter over the fact that no one repented, no one responded. Self-pity leads to bitterness and bitterness leads to victimhood. Later on, Jeremiah comes to his senses in the book of Lamentation. He repents of that and he remembers the loving kindness of God, which is the big change. Secondly, I want you to understand that unforgiveness then is a sign of your failure to remember your unworthiness of God's forgiveness while continuing to be bitter. Which really brings us back to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Often your failure to deal with your own God directed bitterness becomes an excuse to be critical of others. It makes perfect sense. If you believe you have a right to be critical of God, then certainly you have a right to be critical of others. You've elevated your standard and your view of life above God's and, of course, above everyone else who seems to be inferior in terms of their view. Jesus said there on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, "'Do not judge that you will not be judged, for in the way in which you judge, you will be judged, and by the standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye?' How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know what? Jesus loved hyperbole. All right? That word speck in the Greek language actually means particle. All right? Have you ever had a floaty in your eye? Have you ever had one of those little floaty? Imagine if I came to you and I said, you know what? I see that little floaty in your eye. Let me help you get that out of there. When all along, there is a log hanging out of my eye. All right? That is hyperbole, but it teaches it. Going around, you become extremely critical of other people and what they're doing. Bitterness sets you uh, on that path. You become extremely critical. People ex- try to excuse themselves, and they'll say, well, I'm just OCD. or oh, I'm, I'm a perfectionist. That becomes an excuse for being critical. All right? That's what it is. That is an excuse to be critical of other people. Wow. Now, we can't judge. The the Bible says it's not opposed to Christians judging. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is we shouldn't judge other people with a standard we first don't use upon ourselves. That's what he's saying. Our own pastor, John MacArthur, has commented on bitterness towards others in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says this, Forgiveness breaks the bitter chains of pride, self-pity, and vengeance that leads to despair, alienation, broken relationships, and loss of joy. That's true. However, you will not be able to forgive if you maintain a heart that believes that you know better than God. If your heart is humble and contrite, you will acknowledge your critical spirit first to Him, and then to the person who has, sin- you have sin- uh, who has sinned against you. Only then is your heart really ready to forgive. Now, there are two types of signs that bitterness has impacted your life. One is what we call interpersonal signs, and the second is intrapersonal signs. And there are five characteristics of each. In other words, 10A, actions and attitudes of bitterness, all right? The first first one is interpersonal signs, which involves avoidance. In other words, a person has become bitter when they start to avoid close relationships or they avoid seeking any kind of conflict reconciliation. Now, I didn't say conflict resolution. That's more of a secular idea. Conflict reconciliation is a biblical idea. All right? Conflict, when they fail to seek conflict reconciliation. The second area is argumentativeness, which is a person now is prone to verbal debates and prideful statements towards other people. That's when bitterness is taken over. The third has to do with a person being accusatory. They delight, especially in finding faults in other people, as Jesus warned about there in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. They're adversarial. In other words, they love to be contentious with others. They're constantly getting into some kind of word battles with other people. And then last of all, they're abusive, both verbally and physically, towards others who are close to them. All of those are interpersonal signs of bitterness. The second type is what we call intrapersonal signs, which involves anger. That is, a person attitudinally here is constantly agitated in their thinking about their circumstances or about God or about other people. They're constantly agitated. Secondly, they're antagonistic There's a deep dislike or opposition towards other people. Their life is filled attitudinally with animosity. In other words, there's hatred or resentment of others who appear to be happy. They hate that when someone else is happy and they're not. And the fact they'll criticize the people that are happy out of their bitterness Or they're arrogant. In other words, they pridefully believe others do not have a realistic view of life. They're the ones that has the realistic view of life, and they're looking at life through colored glasses, darkly covered glasses. And they're avenging then. Attitudinally, they're secretly plotting to sabotage the happiness of others. secretly planning to sabotage the happiness of other people because they resent that. So the interpersonal signs are all the actions of bitterness. The intrapersonal signs are all the attitudes of bitterness, and they all add up to a souring of the soul, all of them. What ultimately then is the remedy? What is the ultimate remedy here? Well, let's take a look at five things that I think are key if there's going to be real and substantial change here. The first one has to do if the, the, for the fruit to change, then the root has to change. How do we do that? Well, we have to first repent. Identify the sinful demands of your heart and repent of each one of them. What is my heart really demanding here that is sinful and ungodly? I've got to identify that. If I don't identify that, I'm I'm really not going to know my own heart. What is it? The second thing that's key here is to reconcile. Seeking forgiveness from others who are aware of your bitterness and work hard to rebuild the relationship to one that is better than before the bitterness took over your life. I want to rebuild that relationship with that other person my wife, my husband, my children, my friend. I want to rebuild it so that it's actually better than it was before that bitterness took over. What do I need to do in order to do that? Thirdly, then you need to renew, make a detailed list of righteous thoughts to put on. One of the things I should be thinking instead of the negative, pessimistic, embittered, Thoughts that come out of my angry pride. What are the righteous thoughts that I need to do? Or think. And then fourth, you need to rehearse, practice daily self-talk of righteousness, the same as the psalmist does. When you read much of the psalms, sometimes we miss the fact that the psalmist is actually talking to themselves. They're using good theology and good doctrine to talk to themselves about what they should be thinking instead of what they normally would think. What should you be thinking? Self-talk is very important here. You're talking to yourself from the standpoint of biblical truth, not from the standpoint of negative, angry, embittered, pessimistic thoughts. We're not, we're not talking that way. We're talking thoughts that are true and based upon good, godly truth. And then you need to remind God's overwhelming graciousness to you should be the graciousness you extend to other people You need to remind yourself of that all the time. So repentance, reconciliation, renewal, rehearsal, and reminding in order to change that bitterness. Change that bitterness. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy your home. It'll destroy your relationships. It'll destroy your friendships. If you allow the bitterness to go on. It's a cancer that has a life of its own inside of you. You can't ignore it and expect things to get better in your life. It will just slowly get worse. Some time ago, I was reading uh, John Bunyan's material, and this statement stood out to me. Listen to the insightful words of John Bunyan about frowning providence. He says this, Do not even such things as are most bitter to the flesh tend to awaken Christians to faith and prayer to a sight of the emptiness of this world and to the fadingness of the best it yield? It's a great question. Doth not God by these things oftentimes call our sins to remembrance and provoke us to amendment of life? How then... Can we be offended at such things by which we reap so much good? Therefore, if mine enemy is hungry, let me feed him. If he thirst, let me give him drink. Now, in order to do this, Bunyan says, number one, we must see good in that, in which other men can see none. Number two, we must pass by those injuries that other men would revenge. Number three we must show that we have grace and that we have made that we are made to bear what other men are not acquainted with and number 4 many of our graces are kept alive by those very things that are the death of other men's souls and then he concludes with this the devil they say is good when he is pleased but christ and his saints when displeased. Wow. Are you good when you're displeased? Or are you bitter? All right? Well, I told you we were going to memorize something, right? So let's say it together, shall we? She is radically changed now. Now. When bitterness God is the and bitterness is the Perfect. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of the Word of God because it reveals our hearts for what they are, and it reveals how much we need you And we need to reflect upon how we have been forgiven in Christ so that we in turn can turn around and be forgiving in our relationships to others, but also to trust you in your sovereign work. You have never, ever made a mistake in all of human history, no matter what we are going through. And we are not your first mistake. You know exactly what you're doing. You are bringing about everything in our life, all the circumstances, including the frowning providences of life around to your glory and to our good. I pray that you help us to live with that as our focus, especially when life becomes extremely hard, difficult, and we experience losses that we think we cannot bear. Help us to hold on to your goodness and your grace. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.